Hello, this is Austin Philbin, and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. Today's episode, Hungry, Humble, and Smart. I'll be joined by Lisa Crawford, a principal within the Platform Strategy and Consulting Group at BNY Mellon Pershing. Lisa is a native of Australia, an avid traveler, having visited more than 30 countries. And in their current role, she helps registered investment advisors focus on the business side of their practices, amongst other things. We'll be discussing entrepreneurism, how to build a culture within an RIA, and probably most importantly, financial literacy and our obligation as individuals within the financial service industry to help perpetuate that notion. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Lisa Crawford, who's a principal of Platform Strategy and Consulting at BNY Melling Pershing. Lisa, thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Austin, thanks so much for having me. It's really cool to be here. This is my first ever podcast, and it's really cool to be able to contribute alongside so many other awesome folks in our industry. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. Let's start with just the basics. Would you mind um, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing currently at uh, BNY Mellon and Pershing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start at the end. Um, at BNY Mellon, I am part of the business consulting team, and we sit inside of the Advisor Solutions Business Unit of Pershing. BNY Mellon is a huge organization. We've got 55,000 people all over the world. We're the world's largest global custodian. So there's always really cool things and interesting things happening in our business, and um, that goes for every business unit. And I'm just I'm really passionate about what we do at Advisor Solutions and what our consulting team is able to do. So I support our Advisor Solutions clients, which are generally RIAs, trust companies, multifamily offices, with really helping them dig in and. Uh, deal with the business side of the business. So we look at strategy and, and risk and human capital and marketing and growth. And um, we come alongside them like coaches and consultants to help them identify and address challenges and opportunities that they're facing and then walk with them through those challenges and opportunities through execution um, to the other side. So it's a really awesome job and um, I get to engage with so many incredible RIAs around the country and learn from them and share with them. And so it's been a, an interesting road to get to that point. Um, I came to the United States in 2007. I grew up in Australia. Don't really have an accent anymore, though apparently it comes out every now and again on a couple of words. Um, but came here and uh, didn't really know anyone, didn't really know anything. Uh, I had just graduated college. I worked at Blockbuster all through college. And um, my husband at the time was working at an REA, and I kind of fell into the industry a little bit here and there. Um, and then I went and did recruiting for several years and then um, came back to the RIA industry at an RIA in the DC metro area and worked there for several years and really just fell in love with what we do as an industry and, and the difference that we make in people's lives. Um, and uh, I've just been really lucky to connect with so many 
really incredible people who've really dedicated their lives to making our industry better and serving clients. And, um, and it's fun to be able to now in my current role, take that back and, and share that knowledge and experience with other people. That's great. I want to come back to one of the points that you made uh, when you're talking about your current position and your background, which is helping advisors and RIAs focus on the business side of uh, a wealth management practice. And I'd like to focus just on a a specific client segment for a minute and get your point of view, which is for RIAs that are founded based on advisors moving from traditional financial institutions into the independent space and how there needs to be or there could need to be a mindset shift from one of being a producing financial advisor in a financial institution to being an entrepreneur and a business owner. And so two questions. One, what are the initial challenges that you see around that mindset change? And then secondarily, you know, how do you work with these types of clients to get them thinking about their practice as an actual business versus just something that's being produced within a captive institution? Yeah, great question. And I've had the pleasure of working with a number of clients who've um, come to the independent side in a variety of different ways. And and their stories all tend to be pretty different as to what made them really want to make that jump at the end of the day. Some of them have been in you know, the captive environment for 30 years, right? And that's all they know. And, and some haven't um, kind of had that longevity there really is a huge mindset shift though, because when you come from the the captive environment, you know, you walk into your office every morning and there's, you know, there's a conference room and, and there's paper and there's coffee in the machine and the lights are on and, and that stuff just kind of happens. And, and then one day when you walk into your own office and you realize you've got to go like buy the conference room chairs and order coffee and pay the bills. And, and it's those little things, right. That make such a huge difference in, in that mindset. Right. And all of a sudden you're in charge, not only of your clients and of maintaining those relationships and growing those relationships, but also hiring people and really training them and coaching them and providing career paths for them. Um, you're, you're thinking about your, your exit strategy, right? And, and where are you taking this? Even if you're not going to exit for 20 or 30 years, you still you know, have to be thinking about that in the back of your mind. And those are a lot of things that I guess you don't really need to think about in that, in that captive world. And so I think some people make that shift really easily. Um, they're, they've been thinking about it for a long time. They've been preparing for it. They have an idea of the kind of business that they, that they want to grow and, and build. Um, and then others are, you know, they know that they want to go on the independent side, but they're not really sure what it's going to look like when they get there. And so um, that's where we come in and, you know, we partner with you guys, obviously at Dynasty and had the pleasure of working with several of our combined clients in helping them make that shift. But that first two years of, of independence, you know, I, I always counsel the clients that we work with just to really focus on the business. Don't make any huge changes, but just get get the basics right you know, figure out your people first, figure out your client experience, make sure your operational workflows are really well documented and, and that you're going back and, and everything is really buttoned up before you try and turn on that growth tap. Um, because I think it's, 
that it's dangling out there. Everyone's like, I really want to grow really quickly. It's like, okay, but let's get the basics right first and then let's grow from there. Um, and so we've, we've come alongside a couple of, uh, couple of clients actually that we work alongside your team with Austin and, um, really just helping them understand the basics of a strategic plan. What, What's part of that? What do they need to do? How to execute it? How to stay accountable to that? And what are appropriate goals to set? Um, I think, you know, it's easy to set, you know, big lofty goals. And then it's kind of disappointing at the end of the year, if you look back and you realize you haven't achieved any of them. I think setting appropriate and and reasonable goals every year and reviewing them and, and adjusting them is a really important discipline to get into, especially if you're starting a, a brand new business and you've got a blank slate on what you're able to do with that business. I totally agree. Uh, you know the the comment around keeping things simple is incredibly important during you know the early phases of a brand new RIA. I try to have uh, clients focus in on on three critical items over call it the the first between two and four quarters. So, you know, half a year to a year. And that's making sure that number one, you transition your clients over. So moving your clients from your current institution into your new RIA is obviously really important. That's the basis of your business. The second component is making sure you're able to understand the impact of decisions around your fee structure. So being able to bill on your assets is number two. And then number three is being able to provide some sense of reporting around the assets that you brought over so that the client, one, knows that they're safe, and number two, has an idea of what you're doing for them. And then outside of that, the other items are, you know, around people and around culture and uh, helping RIAs to come up with a strategic plan, to your point, that's achievable um, yet focuses on the things that are really important to the business as an enterprise, the streams of revenue, expenses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the point around people, and I'd be interested in, in your point of view, is uh, just as dramatic of a shift as the mindset going from a captive to an entrepreneur, which is if you're the CEO or one of the principals of a business, Yes, you were responsible for these individuals before within an institution, and obviously they made a commitment to you to come over and join your practice. But how have you seen uh, newer entrepreneurs, once they've moved over with their their team, to ensure that the team, one, is satisfied from a cultural and financial perspective, but maybe just as important thinking about setting a career path for that individual so that they feel challenged and that they understand that while it may be a smaller organization to start, that they have opportunities for advancement. Yeah, I um, am really passionate about the the people side of this business. And, you know, as a non-client facing non-advisor in an advisory space, um, it's it's easy to feel like a second class citizen in some places where it's like, well, you know, we really exist for the advisors and everybody else is second to that. And so, you know, I came in and I've never been an advisor. I never wanted to be an advisor. Um, my passion really is on that, the business side of the business. And so, 
you know, when you look at the human capital strategy and you think about, you know, how to build out a business to make it meaningful for the people, regardless of the role that they sit in, right? Whether they're your head trader, your receptionist, a lead advisor with the biggest client relationships, your employees are just as, if not more important than your clients, right? Because clients are great and we need them obviously for, for revenue and that's why we exist, but you couldn't serve them without the team that you've built around you. And so, I think just being really cognizant of the various ways that uh, folks can contribute to the organization, right, um, and, and and creating meaning in that, right. And so, um, I've I've heard stories of folks in operational roles, even COO level type roles, who've been told, you know, you're not um, eligible for equity in this business because you're not an advisor. And I think that's going away slowly, hopefully. Um, but I, you know, I think that we can we can be really creative in small businesses and creating meaning and, and uh, interesting, engaging, challenging roles for people, and and recognizing that some people, when they they come into a business, they want to grow, right? They they are in incredibly driven, but also uh, just curious, right? And so they don't want to do the same job every day for 20 years. And so how do we find a space for somebody like that in a small business? But then there are some people who come in and they love operations and that's all they want to do. And they love paperwork and the detail and, and being able to really follow that procedure and policy to a T and get it right every single time. And how do we find a space for somebody like that in an organization without looking on them and saying, well, you're not as good as somebody who's, you know, trying to, you know, grow and change and, and be in different roles, right? And so that creativity in the career path building process, um, I think is just a really important thing to remember. I think also to, you know, and BNY Mellon is a huge company. We've got career ladders and there's, you know, protocols around when and how people get promoted. And, and we need that. Like we're this huge, huge organization. But in a smaller organization, you have this ability to be a lot nimbler when it comes to creating new roles for people. I mean, even in, in my story, I know it says on LinkedIn, I was the director of business management, but I didn't start in that role on day one. I was actually hired as the office manager. And, um, and that role of director of business management didn't exist. And the, the folks that I worked with were incredible in, in giving me a chance to try new things. And I mean, they, they gave me a lot of grace and, and I'm so grateful to them for that. Um, but I basically just kept putting my hand up and saying, all right, I want to try this. I want to try this and I want to kind of grow this. And I think we could do more here. And I think we could do more there. And over the course of, you know, a couple of months and years, that role evolved. And, you know, every six months there were different things that I was doing in, in the company. Um, there's, there's always projects coming up. There's always, uh, opportunities that we could have jumped on and, and, you know, because they were so nimble and so open to, you know, following a non-linear career path for me, I was able to really, I think, contribute more to their business, but also learn more and share more and, um, you know, be a bigger influence in, in the success of the business. For sure. Coming back to, again, some of the things that you were just talking about, I would suggest one of the critical elements for entrepreneurs or principals of RIAs is, you know, that awareness factor that would lead one to understand that perhaps individuals that are part of an organization 
have other aspirations or potentially could have other aspirations than what they've done in the past. So I always say that, you know, from the perspective of starting a new RIA, I mean, it's, it's a blank slate. You now, Mm -hmm. not only as the principal, but your other uh, team members now have the opportunity to build things correctly. And there's always of which to define correctness from policies and procedures to investment strategies, et cetera. But within that framework, it's being able to create awareness as to the aspirations of individuals. And the second point, and this comes to most every conversation that I have with people that are interested in joining uh, the team that I kind of manage here at Dynasty, or actually manage, not kind of manage, but <laughs> the, the point is around self-actualization. Like I want people that are aware that there are other elements to their life than just their professional life. And in order, my view, in order to be um, a self-actualized human being, we have to allow for the people that work with us to explore other elements of their life and not feel this pressure, particularly in today's environment, even before COVID, but even now where you're on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because there is no commute. Um, And allowing people to say, look, I have other things that I'm interested in life, and I'm going to give you my all and dedicate uh, my time when I'm working professionally but I also want them to be able to explore other things that they're passionate about and then share those passions uh, within the workplace so that other people understand um, the multifaceted components of, of people as human beings. I don't know well, if and you I, get and it. I, yeah. I love that. And there's this great book I read. Um, it's on my shelf here somewhere called Bury My Heart in Conference Room B. Yes, and it's yeah, and it's all, you know, I actually remember the person who recommended it to me and and she said, this book will change your life. And I was like, okay, yeah, everyone says that about these business books, you know, like she's kind of skimmed through them and it's really just a sales pitch for some big consulting company. But it really did change my life because it, it makes you really challenged to think about, you know, don't leave your values at home, right? Like be who you are at work and, and bring that to work. And, and the people around you and the clients that you serve and, and the people that you interact with at work will benefit from that. And what I love about the financial planning industry is we're not selling widgets. Like This is such a relationship-oriented business. It's so people-driven. And, and people love the stories about you know, how people got into this industry. One of my favorite questions to ask a new client is, why are you here? You know, like, how did you get here? Right. Um, did you come here by accident or did you intend to become a financial advisor? And you know, Matt, Matt Sonnen, my, my other favorite um, financial services podcast, he asks these people, you know, I bet you didn't you know, go to high school and college you know, dreaming to be a COO of a, an RIA, right? Like right. a lot of us didn't really plan on, on being here, but the stories that we have along the way have made us who we are and, and contribute to the value that we can bring to the organization. And so I've seen so many amazing things come out of RIAs because of people's individual passions, whether it's you know, a particular charity that they are involved in. I mean, financial literacy, I've seen so much great work being done in the space of financial literacy because somebody individually had that passion and they brought it to work. And, and if they hadn't, then we, we wouldn't be seeing the outcome of that, of that effort. I a hundred percent agree with that statement. And what's interesting to me is 
having prior experience at traditional financial institutions and working in metropolitan areas like New York City and Philadelphia, I wouldn't say that there's a stigma per se, but I would say that there's at times intense pressure for financial advisors or individuals within the financial service industry to display this sense of perfection and all-knowing and complete control and aggressive and all these other adjectives. It may be a stereotype, and I'm sure, and I'm not sure, uh, they're definitely uh, alternatives to the case, but you know, this whole thought around authenticity uh, is really important because I agree with you. I, I think that the closer that we can get as as humans to being able in our professional and personal lives to present ourselves in an authentic way, my guess is that we'd have even more success at said profession as a financial advisor um, to be able to to interact with clients. Because I do believe that clients at the end of the day understand that there is no such thing as perfection and advisors are doing the best they can to ensure that people are meeting their goals and objectives. And so I think that point like of like, why, why is there this necessity to be, to, to represent some sort of old stigma around the, the cufflinks and the mahogany? I I think that's (laughs) got to go away. Yeah. And you know, the, that mentality of I've got to be right all the time and I, I have to know everything all the time and I shouldn't have to ask questions is just so evasive. It's, it's the worst possible thing that can happen to an organization. And I've seen it happen. And I'll tell you what happens when, when people exist in a work environment like that, they, they check the box on, uh, I've made an outgoing call to verify the wire and they hadn't right? Because they didn't know that they were, you know, they didn't really understand why they should have done that. And nobody ever told them and they were afraid to ask, right? you know, and, um, you know, or they make a trade error and then they try and hide it, you know, and it, it creates this environment where people aren't comfortable being vulnerable or being authentic and, and they're not able to, to ask for help. I've learned so much from making mistakes and I've made some pretty big mistakes <laughs> along right. the way. Um, some, some were kind of ugly, you know, in reflection. And, you know, I was, you know, it doesn't matter how old I was or how experienced I was, but, you know, you take from that and you learn from that. And not only do you learn from that, but everybody else around you learns from that, you know, and, and it takes some, some humility even to, to, admit that you've made a mistake. I remember I used to do billing and I actually really liked doing billing at my firm. It, it was kind of a, one of those like peaceful things I did every month. I just locked the door and, you know, put my head down and did it. And I realized when I went to bill one of these clients one time that I had been underbilling him for three quarters. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, oh man, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all right, I got to like print this out and then walk down the hall and take a deep breath and just like walk into the CFO's office and say, so actually I have to tell you, we're a little short on revenue because I underbilled this particular client, you know, to the tune of a couple of thousand dollars for the right. last three quarters. And I mean, the grace that he showed me in that moment was just amazing. And and just, I mean, as a leader, that's what you want. Um, but you've got to be able to admit when you've made a mistake and you've got to be able to ask for help, 
right? And that that culture comes from the leaders, right? If right. they're not asking for help, if they're not admitting that they don't know everything, then the people won't do that either because, they, you know, you kind of live in this fear of, well, you know, these people know everything. Like, I can't admit that I don't know what this is. And like, Investopedia isn't really helping me. So I'm just going <laughs> to submit this paperwork and hope that I got it right. You know, like, that's terrible. It's the worst thing that can happen in an organization, right? And, and I think too, we need to give ourselves a little bit of credit because this is a complicated job, right? Being an advisor, being in operations is really complicated. I look at what our service people deal with on a day-to-day basis. And when I started at Pershing, basically spent the first month just walking around our office shadowing people, right? I, I thought I knew RAAs. I knew nothing about custody. And, you know, I was about to go out there and be a relationship manager for a custodian. I was like, I really need to spend some time learning this custody business thing. And I sat with our service people. It is incredible the depth and breadth of answers that they need to have at the tip of their tongue when the phone rings or an email pops in, right? It's okay not to know everything all the time, right? So that's where it comes back to documenting things, right? As a new entrepreneur and like creating the right structure for learning, but also for helping people to get it right for the next time it pops up and that question is asked again. Um, But there's just, I mean, it's so complicated and I think we're finding new and more complicating ways to do business and to invest in things for our clients. And, um, and so the, the challenge is real in, in, you know, not knowing everything all the time, but, you know, hungry, humble, and smart is kind of my mantra on a lot of that stuff. And, um, you know, being smart about it is is knowing when to say I don't know, but also you know knowing when to say Hey, I I'm, I think I've made a mistake, you know, and I need some help here. I'm I'm in deeper than I should be. For sure. I mean, I, I think about my personal path with Dynasty and you know almost nine years. I mean that what you just talked about is one of the reasons why I'm still very excited about getting up and coming to work every day is because each day is a new challenge and a new element of learning around any number of different topics within the RIA ecosystem. And to me, that's, that's the greatest, one of the greatest things about having a job like this is that every day is different. And sure, there's an element of uh, experience and institutional knowledge that builds up when you're passionate about something and you spend a lot of time doing it. But that only happens to your point if you're working within a culture where you're stretched to come up with solutions and that it's okay to make a mistake and it's also okay to ask a question around how does this get done. And to, to put the final point on, I love what you said around the memorialization of policies and procedures. And so not to get, you know, overly technical, but the key is you know, as someone learns something, you should have a culture within a business, any business, but particularly in the RA space where the procedure is memorialized so that the next person, again, to your point that comes in, is able to look at a manual or be taught something verbally so that um, you start to expand that institutional knowledge. And that only works if you start with an end in mind, because the initial part of a transition, if you're starting a new business, everyone's doing a lot of different things. Everyone's kind of scrambling to get assets over to start generating revenue. But as principals, you have to be able to take a step back 
take a deep breath, be able to see the entire landscape and say, here's where we need to go. And in order to get there, we can't have everyone doing the same thing. We need to have institutionalized policies that people can follow. And then we need to be stringent or as stringent as possible around following those policies. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get scale. And if we don't have scale, we're not going to be able to grow. Yeah. And there's really no excuse anymore either, right? Like when I when I started building out our kind of playbook for all the operational stuff at the RIA, you know, I was typing everything out in Microsoft Word and, you know, it's all very fancy. And now you can download cool apps on your computer or your phone and it just like screen captures a video and you can talk over it and say, okay, so once you've done this, click this button and drag this over here and do this. And then you hit save and you pop it in a folder that says, this is how to open a new account. And all the person has to do is sit there and watch the video or go back and watch it again and again and again. And and there's your onboarding plan for your next right. new hire, right? Like make it easy for yourself and and you know, do it the first time you do it and 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 realize while you're doing it where you can remove roadblocks or create efficiencies or you know, work smarter or not harder on on the things that you're working on and um get your job done faster so that you can get out there and be with your clients. Cause generally speaking, that's what we all want to be doing. Absolutely. You spoke about financial literacy uh, a few minutes ago and, you know, I've had conversations with others on this podcast about it. I know that you grew up outside of the United States, but within the U S educational system, there really isn't any education on basic finances. No one Mm -hmm. teaches you what credit card debt is and how deleterious it could be to a personal situation. Nobody really talks about, you know, what's the proper way to budget and what your expectations should be when you receive your first paycheck. So it's either handed down from family members. And as I think, you know, everyone can agree upon, at least in the U.S., there's a relative stigma about talking about money for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really nothing uh, that that's widespread and institutionalized around financial literacy. So could you speak to your thoughts on, on that topic and, and some of the work that you do to promote financial literacy in your community or things that you've seen others do effectively in promoting financial literacy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Australia, moved here um, straight out of college and um, really had no exposure to the U.S. educational system except for when I went to grad school at William & Mary um, in Virginia and had to get a student loan. That was an experience um, and actually became a citizen so I could get a student loan, among other reasons. You know, I, I have kids here and they're American and so it was important for me to also become American. But now I've got two boys in grade school, so... My oldest just turned 11. He's in sixth grade. My younger is eight in third grade. And um, they've gone to a couple of different schools. Um, we lived the last five years in Orlando, and we just recently moved out here to Denver. And so it's been really interesting to see what they learn and how they learn it about money and finances. And they're really lucky that they have two parents who have jobs, who um 
who are in this industry and who can talk about it and, and who often talk about it at the din- dining room table at, at night at dinner. And yep. they roll their eyes when we start talking about, you know, the markets and the economy and, you know, financial planning. And um, they're like, gosh, can't we talk about Legos? You know? <laughs> so I'm like, no, you will, you will thank Fortnite, me later yeah. for this. Yeah. Right. So uh, they're Minecraft kids, but yeah. Uh, so, okay. um, you know, when I, when I started at Pershing, um, I had for a few years leading up to that, been working with um, some of the university programs. Um, just from my work at the REA, you know, we we always did interns, we always hired them, and I, I got so much exposure to these students who were at the big CFP program schools. I got to hear their stories and, you know, kind of how they came about being in that class, right? But then when I got to Pershing and and I. I worked really closely with Mark Diversion, which was such a blessing to me and just such a gift. Um, and one of the first things that he told me about when I started working here was about the, the program that he had started up in Gladstone, Michigan. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Google Mark Diversion Financial Literacy and you'll read all about it. It's really incredible what he's done. Um, and he said, you know, we've got this program at, at BNY Mellon Pershing too to, to help increase the work that we can do with financial literacy. And so I got involved in, in that. Um, and it's kind of been an evolution <laughs> since then of just the more I see, the more I want to do. And, um, and so for us, it's a huge part of our corporate social responsibility program. Um, and actually, we also have a, a Pershing foundation that... Um, gives out money every year to financial literacy causes. So it's something that I'm really passionate about, but thankfully also something that Pershing is also really passionate about and our clients too. I mean, the work that some of our clients are doing, is just really amazing. And it's, it's really fun to see and, and to hear what, what's been successful for them. But there's so many different programs out there who are delivering financial literacy. So Big Brothers Big Sisters does a lot. The SIFMA Foundation does stuff. There's tons of advisors running grassroots efforts in their communities. Um, and then there's CFP programs. But if you think about financial literacy kind of along a long continuum, right, there's the elementary age kids and then mm-hmm. there's the high school and college age kids. And they all need help. But the help looks a little bit different depending on where they are in their age, right? Obviously, the kindergartner kids need different content from the high school age kids, right? And the college kids are dealing with a unique set of issues that the high school age kids aren't dealing with. And so what I've tried to do is kind of split up what I do and how I do it depending on the audience. So at at Pershing, we partner with a company called Everfi. They're a technology company out of DC, and they have online financial literacy amongst other courses. And so we've adopted at Pershing a number of elementary, middle, and high schools around the country. And actually, just recently, we adopted a middle school here in Denver. So that fingers crossed, when life is normal, whatever that looks like ever again, if we can go on campus, then I can go on campus here in Denver and and be really active and, and engage with the students that way. And then we've opened up that program to our clients as well. So we have a ton of clients around the Pershing Enterprise that sponsor schools through Everfi um, that, that bring a, a playbook to the school, the advisor doesn't have to even lift a finger. Um, they can get involved if they want to, but they don't have to. And and Everfi goes in and, and runs this program for the school and, and delivers the, 
materials all online. So if they're in school, they can use the computer labs. If they're learning virtually, then everyone has computers anyway. Um, and so it's been really fun to see that Adopt-A-School program really lift off and, and folks become more and more engaged in it. Um, and uh, actually, just uh, on Monday, a couple of my colleagues and I joined a high school class for an urban assembly school in New York City, um, in a school, high school kids, um, and they just pounded us with questions like, you know, how do I budget? You know, what should I be doing? How should I be thinking about money? And, you know, just being able to share with them stories about what we've learned, mistakes that we had made, um, and tools and resources available to them to help them make their decisions, right? And, I mean, we can make the, the classic jokes. Like, if you're going to go to social work, into social work, then you probably don't need to go to Harvard, right? Right. But it's, it's even more basic than that, right? It's how do I know how much money to spend, right? And so talking to them about how to, how to monitor their cash, right, and to make sure that they're not, you know, drawing over on their, on their debit card and when might be the most appropriate time to get a credit card and not and how to manage that if you do. Um, one of the questions was like, how do I talk to my parents about this stuff, right? Like they don't right. talk to me. How do I start the conversation? And I love that because they recognize that they want to learn, but they're not hearing it from home. And it, the teachers aren't equipped to deliver this, this content either. I mean, they've got so much that they're already trying to teach. Absolutely. And so, yeah. The Adopt-A-School program is just, it's so awesome and it's its its easy and fun. And for the clients of ours who um, have got involved, some of them who were pre-COVID were able to go on campus and talk to the students and, and chat with them and, and just make it more engaging, right? And it's not about creating the next generation of financial planners, right? This is about creating the next generation of Americans who are going to actually save for retirement, who, right. who aren't going to be dependent on Social Security, who are going to think about what job they want and, and, and make appropriate educational decisions to get to that point, right? And, and it's just those really, really basic life decisions that, that all kind of come back to money right. and, and giving them the power to, to, to make a decision with confidence that they're doing the right thing. And that's lacking today. Yeah, I also imagine that by interacting with students, it, it's a good reminder of what's important and what type of questions uh, that people have. Because, you know, when the industry and the positions that you and I are in and some of our colleagues or most of our colleagues are in, there's, there's a level or a potentiality for uh, some sort of I guess jaded would be the wrong word, but you know, when you look at these portfolios that are sometimes tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, you start to like, you know, forget or become acclimated to that level of discussion. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is that most Americans, it doesn't matter Americans, most people do not have that level of wealth. Mm -hmm. So the basic building blocks, to your point, of understanding how to budget, understanding how to make decisions based on a cost-benefit analysis or any of the other strategies that would be employed in teaching people is extremely helpful. It reminds me, you know, before I got into financial services, after I graduated from school, I, I lived in Japan. I lived there for almost five years and I taught uh, initially really young children. And it was the greatest gift to me because 
you know, as we get into adulthood and, you know, obviously we have our own children, but like to, to have the experience of teaching, you know, first, second and third graders on a regular basis, you just their energy and excitement about life, like teaches you, or at least it taught me that, you know, be happy with the little things and why that's important is like contextually, it's, it's important to, to remember that, you know, people don't know as much about financial services as people that are in the industry. And if we can share that information and knowledge with others, that should be seen as a real altruistic benefit to all the knowledge and experience that we've gained and should be commiserate with the dollars that we generate from, you know, our salaries and things of that nature. Because you get back what you put in, I think. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. And, you know, I... I think it ties really nicely into the the focus on DNI in our in our conversations today as well, right? And and folks are saying, well, you know, I don't know how to hire diverse candidates. They they don't exist, right? And so I've got to believe that some of this work that we're doing now will will actually really come to fruition in 15 years' time, right? Where mm-hmm. there will be more diverse clients because People generally in broader communities are going to be making better financial decisions, but that might also lead to um, more diversity in our industry too. Um, And there are just so many opportunities to give back and so many communities that need us to give back to that there's really no excuse why everybody shouldn't be doing something, right? right? And being engaged and, and sometimes it doesn't even cost money. I mean, I, I met this lady out in, uh, in San Francisco last year, I was out there um, chatting with folks about financial literacy and, and trying to encourage more people to get involved. And And she's like, well, I started this like 20 years ago and I've just always been doing it. And I just thought it was very normal. <laughs> I right. was like, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> like, I wish there were more people like you who thought about that, right? And and sometimes it takes, you know, having your own kids. And, and for me, that was certainly, you know, the experience. And, you know, we're in the Denver public school system and um, you know, my one of my kids is at a Title I school, and there are 85% of the kids in that school who rely on the school for breakfast and lunch every day. Right. I, I mean, it, it blows my mind. And, and so people, they don't, they're not even worried about, like, what's the difference between a debit card and a credit card. They're, like, worried about how they're going to have money at the end of the week to put food on the table. And that's a really hard way to go through life. That's, yep. that's hard. And so if if we can increase education, if we can get engaged, if we can give back, um, then, you know, maybe just maybe a little of that will go away, right? And, and, and people will be able to make smart money decisions and, and do so with confidence, not only for themselves, but for their future generations too. Yeah. I mean, when you think about uh, your point earlier on Matt Sonnen and talking about most people probably did not go to school and say, you know, I want to be a chief operating officer of an RIA. Um, you also put that in parallel to the way in which Hollywood aggrandizes the financial services industry, or I don't even know if aggrandizes the right word, but it's it's definitely a different view. I mean, typically you've got these um, stock brokers who are, uh, you know, making lots of money and, you know, going around on yachts. And obviously hmm. certain stories have the downfall of said stock broker. And then, um, there's, 
there's a human aspect of this, which I think the more that we can encourage people to get into the community and share what they know and promote financial literacy, where someone uh, in any background can look at a person that's engaging with them and say, you know what, I want to be like that person. You know, I want to be within the financial services industry. And I think sometimes it's just that spark that people need in order to guide them on a certain path. And I know that's a utopian point of view, and that's also somewhat maybe of a Hollywood story, but without... No, but, with, <laughs> but I think too, like we we make it hard for ourselves too, right? Like we talk about financial services and I can, I would put money on the fact that most people when they say that are thinking about the advisor, right? right. They're not thinking about that person who is you know, running the technology integrations that allows for, you know, seamless online new client applications, right? When And, and I do a lot of work with university programs. I love going to schools and, and chatting with students who are in CFP programs or finance programs or whatever program they're in. It generally has been a really fun... Talk to English students. I'm right. like, look, there are jobs for you in financial services, right? Like, sure. it doesn't... I, I studied French in college, right? Like, <laughs> completely ill-prepared for business. But, you know, um, I loved French, and so I wanted to study French. But, you know, there are, there are so many jobs in our industry that require zero knowledge about financial services, right? And those jobs, and we've, we've called them these non-traditional roles, those non-traditional roles are going to be traditional roles in 10 or 15 years because every firm is going to have it. Absolutely. Every firm is going to have a learning officer. Every firm is going to have a psychologist. Every firm is going to have like a full-time technologist. You know, these roles that are, that are being created, marketing, social media, whatever it is, right? Like when we look at when we look back at the investment use study that's been running for 30 years and the types of positions, it was always advisors, operations, advisors, operations, right? Now we look inside of the firms and there's some real creativity happening in there where firms are recognizing like, I'm going to hire an events person and we're going to have an events driven marketing strategy and this person is going to drive business for us, right? That didn't exist necessarily. And, and as firms get bigger and more professional and as the institutional side of, you know, the service delivery continues to develop and our, our industry as a, as a whole matures, these roles are going to continue, you know, evolving and, and appearing. And I, and I tell these university students, I'm like, look, go work for an advisory firm, do a year in whatever position they give you, and then tell them what you really want to do right? and how you can really make an impact. And that goes back to whatever we were talking about at the very beginning, right? Bring yourself to work, right? right? And, and don't hide behind, you know, a job description. Be bold and, and put yourself out there of the difference that you can make because that's how all these financial literacy programs got started. That's how you know, that's how people have created roles for themselves that never existed before, right? Like chief experience officer. Love it. Right. It's my favorite right now. I'm on a whole <laughs> kick about you should have a chief experience officer. Every firm I talk to, they're like, okay, Lisa, enough with the chief experience officer. I like the I like the thought on the psychologist. I thought that was interesting. I, I for sure think that having a, a psychologist or someone with that type of background within an RIA could be extremely helpful. Oh, it's awesome. It's amazing. And not to like divert, like when you think about people's inherent biases around money and the whole element of behavioral finance, and if you had someone 
separate from the advice. I mean, I've worked with advisors that are really good at, at talking about them and uh, working as advisor. But if you separate it, I think it could be even more powerful because here you have, you know, a psychologist who's obviously employed by uh, the RIA. So there is some conflicts, but really someone who could just listen to an individual talk about their feelings, about their finances and their money and what it means to them and their uh, concerns and worries, and then help to translate that both to the client and to the advisor so that you had an accurate or a more accurate representation of risk and a more accurate portfolio associated with said risk. And that to me would be great if you could do it. Well, and you just, you make those people feel heard, right? Like we've all sat across the table from someone who's trying to pitch us something and you're, you know, kind of like tuning in, tuning out, whatever. But if we can make our clients feel really heard and, and then we adjust not what we do for them necessarily, but how we do it. And we recognize that not everybody wants to be communicated in the same way or in the same frequency or, you know, uncovering those like intergenerational issues and dealing with it, right? Like it's, it's one thing to figure out that, you know, mom and dad and the kids have some like differences in how they believe about money, but like do something about that. Who, who else is going to do it if you don't, right? And, um, and as firms get larger, you know, and, and I was just chatting with some multifamily office clients, you know, like they have that on staff, not only for their clients, but also for their staff, right? Right. So think about the benefit um, for, you know, having that monthly meeting with your all hands where you're working out those communication differences that you have with each other because right. they're going to come up, right? Like you will disagree with the people you work with. And if you're not disagreeing with them, then you're not really trusting them as much as you think you are, right? Like I, I met with a, um, a client and they're like, oh yeah, we, you know, we love each other. Everyone here is so great. You know, we work so well together and, you know, I was like, cool, when was the last time you had a fight? <laughs> right. And they looked at me like, what? And I said, no, truly, like, when was the last time you actually argued about something? When when did you believe strongly enough about something to, to really put your foot down and, and have an honest conversation about how you actually felt? And they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't argue. I'm like, mm, I don't think you guys trust each other as much as you think you do. Right. Because there's no way that we all agree about everything all no. the time. Like, that's and- just not, <laughs> that's not real life. That's Hollywood. And that point, though, aligns very nicely with what we were talking about earlier around a culture or creating a culture in which it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay not to know everything. also believe it. principles of an organization should want to have employees that are passionate enough and care enough about the business where if things aren't going right, that they feel empowered to speak up And also, they feel empowered within reason to challenge an individual or at least an individual in in above them in the hierarchy and their thoughts in a a respectful way. Obviously, we can get into a whole conversation of how to do that professionally, but the reality (laughs) is the culture needs to be one in which those things are allowed. Otherwise, to your point, all you get is, oh, it's great. Whatever, you know, so-and-so says, I agree with. And you're not going to get any growth there, and you're also probably not going to get the truth. And no, it probably your people are going to quit. Mistake. Yeah, yeah, no, because <laughs> exactly. that's miserable. What a terrible way to go through life. And I'm super direct, right? Like, and I I've been working on that. Um, I you know, <laughs> it's 
my uh, my challenge every year. My at the end of the year, when I look back, I'm like, okay, did I do better this year? But I believe really strongly in sharing your opinion. If you if you've got enough like fire in your belly about something and you don't share it, then shame on you. You know, right. like speak up, do something about it because either you're going to change the business and it's going to be good, right? Right, and it's going to impact other people and it's it's going to save the company money, it's going to make the company more money, whatever, right? Or it's going to fail miserably. And guess what? We learn more from our failures than sure. <laughs> we do oftentimes from the things that go right exactly how you thought that they were going to go. Right. But if you don't take the risk in, in putting yourself out there, then, you know, I don't know, that's just kind of a boring, you know, miserable way to go through life, right? Like yeah. be passionate enough about things that you're willing to have a fight every now and again, professionally. Right. Um, and not to digress too far off the point, but to, to bring up in terms of presenting a case or in terms of asking for change, you know, it's important, particularly in, in today's society, like today's society in the United States to differentiate between an opinion and something that is factually based, based on data or based on something that is quantifiable. And the reason why it's important is if one has an opinion on some, how something should work, there should be an ability to say, yes, okay, I agree with that opinion or I don't agree with that opinion. A person in, in a higher end of the hierarchy, while their opinion, quote unquote, may matter more, it's still just an opinion. But when you bring to the table actual data or facts for an argument, an argument in the technical sense of the word, mm-hmm. that should also be understood as not an opinion. Like, here's the facts. Yeah. Like, I'll give here's you an example because exactly. it's kind of like an esoteric subject. But like when an advisor says, I don't believe in marketing, it's never worked, I don't want to spend any money, and you say, okay, well, that's that's an opinion, Right. If I can show based on data that by making changes to your website or by creating a social media campaign that we can show prospects and click-through rates and where they're spending the time on the website and how we can engage them more that's data-driven, it no longer is an opinion that your marketing is or is not working. It's based on facts. And for me, that's one of the tougher things from a conversational perspective when we come up with strategies for RAs is how do we separate what is quantifiable and factual from an opinion that may or may not be based in reality. Yeah. And as a person who's generally always been on the younger end of things, um, I've often been kind of trying to manage change in an upward direction. Right. And, uh, I remember one night Mark Tabosian called me and I was at home and my kids saw the thing and I was like, she could be quiet. You know, I got to take this call. And I hung up and they said, well, who was that? And I said, that was our CEO. And my, my son looked at me and goes, why would he be calling you? You're just a lowly person. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, exactly. I'm just a lowly person. I love that. So humbling. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you um, for bringing me back I, down to earth. But I was like, sometimes he wants to know what I think. And they're like, no. I was like, no, really. Like, I can I can have an opinion at work. I can I can speak up. And and I think, you know, the challenge for especially new entrepreneurs, there's so much happening in your business, right? Like change is just happening at a lightning speed pace and, and trying to capture all of that and, 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 and use it for the good, right? 
I love when I hear that, oh, my receptionist came up with this idea and like, yep. you know, now we do this. And it's like, I love that because it means that they're listening, right? And that people aren't afraid to speak up and, and offer suggestions for change. And, um, and actually we have this awesome program at Pershing that we started a few years ago called the Next Leadership Forum. And it's a two-year personal and professional development program for some of our clients. Um, we've got about 20 clients in each cohort and there's a new cohort that starts every year. And this first cohort is about to finish up the program and they're in this innovation and strategy competition part of the program right now. And so they had to come and pitch ideas to the cohort about, you know, innovative ideas that they would want um, for the industry or for their business or for their role or whatever. And, and then we had this Q and a without four judges that we have. So we have, um, Actually, Matt Sonnen is there, Mark Bruno, Julie Littlechild, and, and Danny Fava. And I loved what Danny said when, when she was talking about how she pitches ideas, right? And she's like, I write a fake press release and I, I print it out and I give it to people and I make them make it feel real, right? right? So it's taking that, like, I have this true argument built up, right, with facts and data and proof. And then I'm going to make it feel real and really tangible. And I'm going to, like, personalize it and make you feel excited for what it could be. And I just, I loved how she presented that idea. And, um, and I, I'm pretty sure that several people in the cohort have since gone back <laughs> and used that, but these are rising leaders, right? Like they're not, not really yet in a leadership position or they're kind of getting to that point. And so they're, they're trying to influence change and impact the business, you know, from underneath. And, um, and it's really cool to see them kind of doing that and, and leading from various points in the organization. I love that. Uh, last, last question for, for you. you. You've got one of the most diverse backgrounds of anyone that I've had the opportunity to, to speak with on the podcast. And um, for people that are listening, Lisa's traveled to more than 30 countries um, so far. Uh, I'm interested in what are some of the the more important lessons that you've learned through the observation of other cultures during your travels? Yeah, I, I love traveling and maybe it's just the Australian in me. For anyone here who's listening who um, is from the States, if you've ever gone to Europe or anywhere in the world, you've met Australians because we're everywhere. <laughs> and all I hear about when people are like, oh, I went to such and such and there were so many Aussies there. We're so far away from everything that if we want to go somewhere, we just basically have to go the other side of the world. So I actually started traveling when I was nine um, by myself um, as a competitive trampolinist, Ooh. actually. Um, yep. I was the uh, Australian national champion tra trampolinist in my heydays when I was 11. Um, and... Uh, and then when I was 16, I came to the States for the first time. And then uh, we spent uh, Christmas in China one year when I was in high school. And then in, when I was 17, I upped and moved to Belgium and, and lived there for a year. And I, I remember kind of coming into land in Brussels airport and I was like, oh, I should probably learn how to say hello. <laughs> like, I don't know any French at all. I've never studied it. I've never heard it before. And I pulled out my little phrase book and the guy sitting next to me was like, I think it's a bit late for that, Lisa. Like, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. So I, I love traveling and I, I love kind of putting myself out there and being uncomfortable um, and, and, and being in places where I, I don't know where to go. I don't know, you know, how to understand the language because it really makes you appreciate other people. It makes you 
stop and listen and learn. And so kind of going back to one of our uh, earlier stories, like the uh, it's it's okay not to know it all. And, um, you know, when you go to other countries and you think that you kind of know what to do or how to do it, and you see how other other folks are doing it, and particularly in Asia and, and Austin, you know, having lived in Japan, like it's just it's so different. It's so remarkably different. Everything looks different and smells different, and and the people are different. Um, it's it's very very obvious. But when you come from Australia to the United States, everyone kind of looks the same, and they kind of dress the same, and you know the accents are different, but we speak the same language generally. Right. But it, it really does challenge how you do things and, and what you think you know about a particular subject. And kind of on that, just because you've always done it that way doesn't make it the right way either, right? And 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 there are new ways to do things and try things and, and see. And, um, and I, when I went to Belgium, I was part of the Rotary International uh, Exchange Program. And so I was at times surrounded by students from all over the country, uh, all over the world rather, all different cultures. And we all had a very different approach to how to get the most out of our exchange program. And, you know, I was pretty proud about my way, but there were a lot of people who did it differently and they also had a great year. And I can't judge them for that. Or, you know, we, we all approach life differently and we need to be open to letting people approach life the way that they want to. I agree. You know, one of the things that that I take from those comments, and it's applicable to to both of our companies, is just the the notion of being flexible. And I think for an entrepreneur, that's incredibly important. For you know, uh, a principal of business, incredibly important. And and having that mental flexibility to say that, um, although things are running well or running a certain way. Perhaps if we take a step back and think about new ways to approach the same problems, we might end up with better results. And to be mm-hmm. open to that, to be open to, to new ideas, risk. concepts, yeah. exactly, to take the risk. So A calculated risk. A cal- right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't be hasty, but you know, it, but you got to take risks, right? In life, right? Like I packed a suitcase and... Um, flew to Belgium and, and didn't know how to speak the language. And I got put with a family who had like pretty minimal English skills, you know, and like that was a huge risk. I I didn't know anyone there and and I was there like 24 hours and like, all right, you got to go to school. And I was like, go to school? Are you kidding? I just graduated. Like, you know, right. like put yourself out there, you know, but in, in a calculated fashion, but in that too, right? Like be vulnerable. And I think that my biggest thing that I've learned from traveling and, and, you know, actually when I, when I came to the States, when I was 16 on the way back, we were on a plane and there were two other Australian girls with me. I'd been at this conference, um, in, in New York and DC. So I was traveling alone. This was, um, July of 2001, right? So the TSA world was a little different back then, but there was this overhead message on the flight from, uh, New York to LA, and then we were going LA to Sydney. And they said, anyone who's going on to Sydney, please come see us at the gate when you when we land. So the three of us got off the plane and went and saw the gate agent. They're like, your flight's been canceled. You'll have to go home tomorrow. <laughs> we were all like, okay, but we're 16 without parents. And, right. uh, and they're like, well, here's a hotel voucher and some food vouchers and come back tomorrow. And, you know, 
they gave us three separate vouchers and I was like, I didn't really know these girls. I was like, we should go together. Like, I don't want to be in this weird hotel room by myself. I'm not comfortable. Like as a leader, or even if you're not a leader in your, in your company, be vulnerable, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to admit you don't know all the answers, but I mean, it's so, so important for leaders to show your vulnerability and your authenticity to your people um, because it will just dividends for years and years and years um, in your business and in your life personally too. I think you go home at the end of the day and you feel like you've, you've done a good thing. Agreed. Thank you very much for joining me, Lisa. I, uh, I had a great discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun, Austin. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's podcast. I also want to thank Lisa Crawford, our guest on today's episode. She's a principal within the Platform Strategy and Consulting Group at BNY Mellon and Pershing. Remember, stay safe and wear a mask.